0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reform Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Forward, This book is the history of a deception. I regard this deception as the greatest deception in American history. So successful was this deception that as far as I know, this book is the first standalone volume to discuss it. The first version of this book appeared as part three of Political Polytheism in 1989. 201 years after the deception was ratified by representatives of the states who created a new covenant and a new nation by their collective act of ratification and incorporation. This new covenant meant a new God. The ratification of the United States Constitution in seventeen eighty-seven, eighty-eight, was not an act of covenant renewal. It was an act of covenant breaking, the substitution of a new covenant in the name of a new God. This was not understood at the time but it has been understood by the humanists who have written the story of the Constitution. Nevertheless, they have not presented the history of the Constitutional Convention as a deception that was produced by a conspiracy. The spiritual heirs of the original victims of this deception remain unaware of the deception's origins. Most of the heirs go about their business as if nothing unique had happened, just as the original victims did after 1788 but a few of the heirs rail against the humanistic historians who have told the story of the new american nation a grand experiment in which the god of the bible was first formally and publicly abandoned by any western nation They have argued that there was no deception, that America is still a Christian nation and that the Constitution, in principle, was and remains a Christian document, and it is only the nefarious work of the U.S. Supreme Court and the American Civil Liberties Union that has stripped the Constitution of its original Christian character. There is no greater deception than one which continues to deceive the victims over two centuries after the deed was done. Political conservatives call for a return to the, quote, original intent of the framers of the Constitution. If only, they say, we could just get back to the original intent, things would be good once again. America would be restored. Christian conservatives follow close behind affirming this recommendation. Problem. Political conservatives are deceived theologically because they do not recognize the implications of the intellectual shift from the deistic Unitarian God of Sir Isaac Newton to the purposeless universe of Charles Darwin. They do not comprehend that the Darwinian god of man controlled organic evolution has replaced Newton's god of the balanced machine. Process philosophy has replaced natural law theory. The conservatives allies, the Christian conservatives, also do not see this. This book is my attempt to teach a Christian remnant the true and long ignored story of how this nation was hijacked politically in 1788 by the spiritual heirs of the self-conscious spiritual disciples of Isaac Newton. Then, in seventeen eighty nine, a social revolution organized by the victors' spiritual cousins began in France. A matter of sovereignty. There are four biblical covenants in history personal, ecclesiastical, familial, and civil. Every covenant has five points sovereignty, authority, law, sanctions, and succession. I have put this structure in the form of five questions Who is in charge here? To whom do I report? What are the rules? What do I get if I obey, disobey? Does this outfit have a future? The supreme covenantal issue is the issue of sovereignty. Christianity teaches that the God of the Bible is sovereign. As both the creator and judge, he alone possesses original sovereignty. But beginning with Adam, he has delegated authority to man to rule in his name. Genesis 1, 28 through 29. I have called this the dominion covenant. All sovereignty that is not possessed exclusively by God is delegated sovereignty. It is also plural sovereignty institutionally. There is no final earthly sovereignty. God, not man, is the final judge. But man, in his continuing rebellion against God, seeks to bring final sovereignty in history down to earth, toward some spokesman or institution with final unitary sovereignty. What is in fact A form of delegated authority under god becomes final sovereignty in 1600 in england this was called the divine right of kings beginning with henry the eighth the king was the head of the national church no earthly appeal beyond him officially speaking the king was the head of the state no earthly appeal beyond him officially speaking the king answered to no earthly sovereignty this violation of the separation of church and state was inaugurated by a consummate renaissance prince theologian adulterer false accuser husband of six wives, sacrilegious thief, glutton, and currency debaser. In the Civil War of 1642 to 1660, the Puritans in Parliament challenged the divine right of kings in both covenants, civil and ecclesiastical. Charles I was beheaded in 1649 by Parliament. The head of church and state lost his head. After the restoration of Charles II in 1660, there was a political stalemate between Parliament and the king. But there was no ecclesiastical stalemate. The king was restored as head of the church. About 2,000 Puritans were removed from their pulpits for refusing to sign the Act of Uniformity of 1662, which mandated the Book of Common Prayer. Similar laws, the Clarendon Codes, were passed 1660-1665. Opponents were dissenters. In 1688-89 through 89, another revolution occurred, the Glorious Revolution. James II, who came to the throne when his childless brother died in 1685, fled the nation in 1688 when another civil war loomed. Parliament replaced the missing king with his Dutch son-in-law, William of Orange, who was also the grandson of Charles I. King William III was a constitutional monarch. From that time on, England operated politically under the doctrine of the divine right of Parliament, a legal doctrine affirmed by the jurist William Blackstone in his book, Commentaries on the Laws of England. This book became the law book of the American colonists. But in 1775, the colonists were in revolt against Parliament, although officially in the name of a revolt against the king, as the Declaration of Independence affirmed. What is rarely discussed in the history of textbooks and even specialized monographs is the fact that the American Revolution was also a revolt against the king's ecclesiastical sovereignty, the continuation of a colonial revolt that had begun with the pilgrims in 1620. The American Revolution was motivated by widespread opposition to the right of the Church of England to send a bishop to the colonies. Without a bishop to ordain pastors, the Church of England was hampered in its evangelism and church planning efforts. Every candidate for the ministry in the Church of England had to journey to England to be ordained by the Bishop of London. This was an expensive journey. From 1620, the Pilgrims of Plymouth... Who were ecclesiastical separatists, had opposed the hierarchical authority of the Church of England. From 1629 to 1630, so had the newly arrived Puritans, although obliquely. Officially, they were not separatists. The Presbyterians of the middle colonies and the interior of the southern colonies also opposed the sending of a bishop. There was widespread belief in the early 1770s that the Church of England, under the king's headship, was planning to send a bishop. The story of colonial resistance to this prospect has been told in detail in Carl Bridenbaugh's Mitre and Scepter. It deserves retelling in every textbook on American history. There has been institutional opposition to the final ecclesiastical authority of the king ever since the English Civil War broke out in 1642. The American Revolution was an extension of that revolution in both church and state, but the official language of the justifying documents of America's revolutionaries was confined to civil government. No one in authority on either side of the war focused on the theological ecclesiastical issue of delegated sovereignty, i.e., society-wide institutional authority under God. This moved the American Revolution from what might have been a comprehensive revolt against the king's ecclesiastical authority and also the divine political right of parliament to a revolt against the divine right of parliament in the name of a rejection of the authority of the king. But in whose name was this revolt launched? By what legitimate authority? The formal answer came retroactively in 1788, we the people. This was a new god with a new sovereignty. The Revolution's exclusive focus on political sovereignty was extended to the debates over the ratification of the Constitution. This political focus made possible the Great Deception. Indeed, it was the heart, mind, and soul of the Great Deception. This deception had begun in 1644 when Roger Williams obtained a charter from Parliament for the tiny colony of Rhode Island. The colony officially was neutral with respect to God, a unique political experiment in the history of the Christian West. Members of the chartering committee that had been appointed by Parliament, which was in open revolt against the king and his bishops, either did not notice this omission or did not care. By the time William's attack on the idea of Christian Commonwealth, the bloudy tenet of persecution, was published in London. He was safely on board a ship back to New England. Parliament ordered his book burned. Too late. The fundamental judicial issue of civil government is sovereignty, original, final, and delegated. Who, or what, is affirmed as being finally sovereign, which means originally sovereign? Who is the creator and the final judge? Secondarily, who is affirmed as representing this ultimate sovereign? To whom has political sovereignty been delegated? Who, in short, is the voice of civil authority in history? God holds civil leaders responsible for their actions. He also holds the people under these leaders responsible. This is taught in Leviticus 4. There is a dual authority under God, representatives who represent God to men and men to God. The leader's authority comes from God, top-down, and from those represented, bottom-up. Sovereignty is claimed by every political entity. The question is this, how can those speaking in the name of the original sovereign prove that they possess delegated sovereignty, i.e., that they are the voice of political authority in history? This is the issue of legitimacy. The issue of sovereignty is inescapably the issue of legitimacy. Who possesses legitimate political authority? This raises the question of incorporation. What document or historical event identifies a particular entity as the voice of authority in politics? Legitimacy is earned. People choose to obey. No institution possesses sufficient power and sufficient wealth to impose its will on people who have decided to resist at all costs. This is why God holds the ruled responsible for acts of those to whom they have submitted. If they did not possess the power to resist, God would not hold them responsible. With power comes responsibility. What government possesses legitimacy? This is the supreme institutional question of government, church, state, and family. But the supreme covenantal question is this, what sovereign authority has incorporated a government? This is the question of society's God modern man believes that he can safely avoid identifying the god of the bible as the incorporating agent modern man identifies either explicitly or implicitly other gods of incorporation man the people the volk or the proletariat each of these gods has his day in the sun but the sun eventually sets conclusion the 13 colonies in 1775 had charters or constitutions only rhode island's charter allowed men of no trinitarian confession to be elected to civil office i.e to serve as part of the voice of civil authority therefore only rhode island refused to identify the god of the bible as the sovereign incorporating agent of the colony the articles of confederation 1781 served as a halfway national covenant they identified the great governor of the world as the sovereign incorporating agent The United States Constitution, 1788, identifies we the people as a sovereign incorporating agent. This book is the story of this covenantal transition, New Covenant, New God.
1: No religious test is ever to be required of any officer or servant of the United States. The people may employ any wise or good citizen in the execution of the various duties of the government. In Italy, Spain, and Portugal, no Protestant can hold a public trust. In England, every Presbyterian and other person not of their established church is incapable of holding an office. No such impious deprivation of the rights of men can take place under the new federal constitution. The Convention has the honor of proposing the first public act, by which any nation has ever divested itself of a power, every exercise of which is a trespass on the majesty of heaven. No qualification in moneyed or landed property is required by the proposed plan nor does it admit any preference from the preposterous distinctions of birth and rank. The office of the President, a Senator, and a Representative, and every other place of power or profit, are therefore open to the whole body of the people. Any wise, informed, and upright man, be his property what it may, can exercise the trusts and powers of the State, provided he poses the moral, religious, and political virtues which are necessary to secure the confidence of his fellow citizens. Tinch Cox, 1787